Amen. Amen. That's the word preached right there, my friend. Please pray with me. Lord, we yearn for you, even as we are terrified to encounter you. So in the beauty of this morning, quiet our hearts and minds and speak to us in your still, small voice. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I think we sang a song about the wind and the rain, so this is appropriate. I have always loved the big, audacious stories of the Bible. I guess it started when I was about six years old and my parents gave me this book. This is the book. It's a little dog-eared. Bedtime Bible stories. It's really not much as books for children go. There's an awful lot of print in there and not very many pictures and those that are are in black and white. Not very exciting for a six-year-old, but oh, the stories. How I loved those stories. They nestled in my heart and soul. They captured my imagination, and they taught me to expect to see God. Riding into town on a donkey, or snuggled down in a stable, or wandering through the early morning garden of my own experience. Never underestimate the power of a great story, the power of this great story to move your child's heart to faith, to move our child's heart to faith. When Pastor Nate asked us to prepare to preach this summer, he made it clear that this whole season is about the power of story, the power of our individual stories, yes, but even more, the power of this story and how it has intersected and impacted our lives. And right away for me, this scripture story sprang to mind, Exodus 3, Moses and the burning bush. And about, I don't know, it was six or eight weeks ago, When I had to tell him what I'd preach on, I told him Exodus 3, and ever since then I've wondered why this story. I could have picked dozens of other stories from the Bible that have been pivotal for me. So why this one? Well, most of all because the day I heard God call me out of a perfectly good, pretty successful and very financially rewarding career in the automotive industry, the day I heard a sudden and completely unexpected call to ministry that came like a bolt out of the blue, that day, as I burst into tears at the recognition of a truth I think I'd always known but never before acknowledged, as I fell to my knees I did my best to remind God that I was particularly unsuited for this call. But God, I said, I'm not a very religious person. But God, I said, I'm not a very wise or even very good person. But God, I said, 
who am I to stand in front of other people and try to point to you? And through my tears, through my torrent of protest, the story came into my heart as clear as I am standing in front of you right now. Exodus 3, Moses called out of the middle of his ordinary, busy, work-a-day world, full of protests for why he is unsuited for this job. But God, he said, who am I? But God, he said, who are you? But God, what if they don't believe me? But, 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 but God, I stutter. I love this story. On that unforgettable day that is now almost 20 years ago, I remembered Moses' story. I went to seminary. In seminary, we learned a lot of wonderful th things. We learned how to read scripture, even how to read it in the ancient biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek. We learned how to preach, how to be present to people in the middle of their lives. We learned fancy theologies and Christian histories and Presbyterian polities. But the most important thing I think I learned during my training, I did not learn in the classroom, but during a six-month chaplaincy that I served at Beaumont Hospital, which was a requirement for ordination. This was, for me, a very challenging experience and one that I didn't enter into willingly. But it was one that formed me in such a way that has been most essential in my ministry and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Each week I would complete the assigned rounds on the various floors of the hospital and each week we would gather together all the chaplains around to review our case studies together, to share our experiences of what had happened in the patient's room at the bedside, to unpack the preconceptions and baggage that we might have carried into those experiences and to challenge one another to more faithful presence and more faithful ministry. In the process, three questions would always come up. Where was God in that encounter? How did you see Jesus in your midst? And what was the Holy Spirit doing at that moment? These questions always rocked me back on my heels and made me look again at what I thought had occurred and undermined any certainty I may have had that I knew what was going on. In that experience, we were being tra trained to see through the eyes of faith to turn aside and recognize in every situation the flame of God's abiding presence, to take off our shoes and feel the vibrations of the holy ground beneath our feet. Now, I suspect that this was easier to do back in Moses' day. I mean, after all then, pretty much everyone understood that all of life was imbued with the divine, right? When things happened, people sensed that God was at hand. If it rained, they thanked God for watering the crops. If thunder rumbled, they heard the heavens speak. In good times and in bad, it was generally understood that God had something to do with it. 
And so when Moses, tending his sheep on the hillside, saw something unusual underway, he turned aside to take a closer look. And in taking the time to turn aside from his everyday business, he discovered a fire that would not go out, a persistent, unquenchable flame of the eternal presence of God. And in that encounter, everything changed. The truth is, the presence of God is always all around us. If we will but take the time to turn aside and look. But everything in our busy lives and our hectic world works against that, doesn't it? I know, I personally have spent years ignoring the flame that burned on the edges of my awareness. When I think about Moses, I think that if Moses were more like us, when he saw that burning bush, he might have claimed to be too busy, that his schedule was too full, that he had other more important commitments. He could have said, well, I have to get the kids to soccer practice, or I need to mow the lawn before it rains, or I just have to get this report written for my boss before five o'clock. If Moses were more like us, he might have seen this strange and terrifying sight and decided not to get involved, to pretend he didn't see it and just walk on by. If Moses were more like us, he might have rationalized it away. This phenomenon of the burning bush, you know, it's just a flash fire, a mirage. If Moses were more like us, he could have found plenty of reasons to keep on walking. But when he took a moment to turn aside and look, to consider the meaning of what he saw, God called to him by name. That's how it happens, you see. God waits for us to turn aside. The truth of your life is that you are always standing on holy ground and God is waiting to get your attention. Barbara Lundblad calls this God's inefficiency. God's inefficiency. For God works in relationship with us and as such always waits for us to slow down, to pay attention, to turn aside, to recognize the holy moment. Now we should probably pause here for a moment to rewind the story a little bit and remember, as Pastor Fernando already reminded us, that Moses was born a Hebrew in Egypt, but he was raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's court. And in spite of the status and privilege that Moses enjoyed, he never forgot the plight of his fellow Hebrews. He keenly felt their oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. One day, having witnessed a particularly harsh beating of a Hebrew slave, Moses, in righteous anger, kills the Egyptian taskmaster. Well, now he's wanted for murder and he's on the run for his life, so he flees out to the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula, where a priest named Jethro takes him in, gives him a job tending his flocks, and introduces him to his beautiful daughter, whom Moses marries. Life's pretty good. 
Moses is comfortable and secure and ready to settle down to a nice, quiet life out in the peaceful countryside. But as it happens, in the midst of minding his sheep and minding his own business, God calls him by name. And Moses is pretty quick to respond. Here I am, Lord. He knows God's been with him, rescued him from the infanticide that threatened him at birth, provided him a good education and a pretty cushy life, and even protected him when he got into trouble. Here I am, Lord, Moses said. I know you. You've been with me. Here I am. And because of Moses' heart for the Hebrews, he is probably more than overjoyed when he hears God's plan to bring them out of Egypt. Oh, that's wonderful. You go, God. What? What's that? You want me to go? No, wait just a minute here. Who am I to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Is Moses pleased at the prospect of a partnership with God? Hardly. He wants no part of it. He's a fugitive from the law. He is not qualified. He stutters. He feels inadequate. He can think of a million and one reasons why this is not a good idea. But God is not impressed by Moses' humility. God is not interested in Moses' desire to live out his life in comfortable anonymity, in quiet good citizenship. God has enlisted Moses for the most exciting, exhilarating, emancipating adventure of his life, and his call is clear, I send you. It is daunting to encounter the living God and realize that God works through us, ordinary people, to bring about the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Like Moses, we can feel pretty inadequate, impossibly ill-equipped to answer that call. But the great stories of scripture reveal that again and again and again, often despite the failings and inadequacies of the people whom God calls, God continues to recruit us to participate in what God is up to in the world and promises to provide the words and the strength and the courage and whatever else is needed for the task. And what is the task? Well, for Moses, the task is saying yes to God, who is the epitome of justice and compassion and mercy. Yes to God, who hears the cry of the oppressed, the afflicted, the hungry, the imprisoned, the refugee, the outcast. Yes to God, who brings liberation and salvation and freedom and new life which means, of course, that the task is also about saying no to the Pharaoh who prioritizes the privileged, no to the chains that perpetuate oppression, no to the actions and the choices that value death over life. For God sees the misery of his people who are in bondage. God hears their cry, and now, as then, God promises to deliver them. Great, we say, praise the Lord, you go, God. And then we settle back and fold our arms to watch the evening news. 
But God says, you, I send you. I call you because I work through you. And I send you to the oppressed folk who have not enough for life, not enough justice, not enough dignity, not enough hope, not enough love. You, I send you. It is downright daunting, isn't it? It was for Moses, too. He wanted some kind of proof, some guarantee, some credential he could stand on. Who shall I say sent me? Who are you? What's your name? What holy ground am I standing on? To which echoes back the eternal response. Yahweh. The unpronounceable name of God, Yahweh, which is at its very root the verb to be, the undeclined essence of existence. But I doubt that Moses heard it as a part of speech. Yahweh. It sounded like the wind blowing through the sand or bouncing off the mountains. Yahweh. It might have been Moses' own panting breath as he struggled to calm the beating of his heart. Yahweh. 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 I am. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Yahweh, I am. I am for you. I am with you. I am in you. I am the heartbeat of your existence. I am the very breath of your life. I am everything you need. And I send you. Take off your shoes, people, for the ground on which we stand is holy. Holy.